Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. So we are in week three of our series on Galatians, and this series, more than maybe other, has challenged me and maybe you as well to read and understand God's word in context. What was happening in Galatia at the time? Why did Paul write them this letter and what can we take from it today? Pastors Lane and Evan have done a great job of laying the groundwork for us. And so if you are just joining us this morning, I would encourage you to go back online and uh, hear the first couple of chapters. Last week, Pastor Evan helped us to see that the Jewish Christians living in Galatia saw the foundation of their faith, the heart of their religion, as obeying the law. Paul, in his argument, points to Abraham, the one they claim as the father of their faith, and says, look at how it all began. It wasn't following the law. It was belief. Abraham believed. If this nation of Israel, this religion, was founded on a moment of belief, of faith, then Paul says, be true to that story. Stop requiring Jesus' followers to obey the law. True Israelites, true people of God, true people who are in covenant with God, are not those who obey a law. They are ones who believe. So we continue today with Paul's argument to the Jewish Christians in Galatia with Galatians 3, 15, 4 to 7. And as I begin this morning... I'm going to read the first like three verses. I want you to notice Paul's choice of language here. Up to this point, the letter has been quite harsh in tone. So Paul's word choice here is intentional. For we are entering into a discussion of the family of God. So this is Paul's words, Galatians 3, 15 to 18. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. The promise spoken to Abraham that Paul is talking about here is found in Genesis 22:18 which says and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed. Paul is saying that God promised to bless the whole world not through the Jewish people plural but through a singular person. And now we know who that person is. Jesus the Christ. 
Paul says the law of Moses, which came 430 years after God promised to bless the world through Jesus to Abraham, when the law came, it didn't void God's promise. Let me say it another way by continuing to use the example of family. What God's people did is once they received the law, the rules for how to flourish within the family, they threw out the birth certificate. They threw out the promise. They thought the laws superseded the birth certificate, that the laws replaced it. But it was the promise, the birth certificate. That's what brought them into the family. And that was a promise of unconditional grace. So Paul says, our relationship with God was always founded on a promise of unconditional grace. The law was never meant to define the relationship. The promise of grace through Jesus is what defines the relationship, always. You may be wondering then, why have the law at all? Great question. Paul addresses this next in Galatians 3, 19 to 22. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin. So, that was prom- so what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. So why was the law given? It was given because of transgressions, because of sin. The mediator here is Moses, and according to several passages, the law was delivered to Moses on Mount Sinai through angels. And Paul says that the law was added because of transgressions. In other words, as we sinned, God gave us the law to reveal the sin. So this is the first purpose of the law. The law was given to reveal our sin. The worst thing about us as humans is not that we sin, it's that we are convinced that we don't. I'm going to read that one more time. The worst thing about us as humans is not that we sin, it's that we are convinced that we don't. God gave the law not because he thought we could keep it. He gave the law because he knew we couldn't. But we didn't know that. We thought we could keep the law. They, the, these Jewish Christians thought they could keep the law. God gave the law to bring to light our sin, to expose our sin. The second purpose of the law is this, to drive us to faith in Jesus Christ. So think of the law first like an x-ray machine. It's given to reveal what's actually going on inside of us. And secondly, think of the law like a prescription meant to push us to the physician 
the only one who can heal us from what is going on inside of us. So, how does, God, how does Jesus heal us? We're going to continue with Paul's letter here. Galatians 3, 23 to 25. It says this. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. God uses the law to drive us to Jesus who heals us by justifying us as we place our faith in him. We are not justified, what makes a person righteous in the eyes of God, by our works, but it's by our faith. Paul wrote the same thing to the Romans a few years later when he said this in Romans 3.28. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. In their attempt, in our attempt to keep the law in our own strength, it actually keeps us from throwing ourselves at Jesus, the only true law keeper. The purpose of the law of Moses is fulfilled when it exposes us to be such sinners that our only hope is to fix our eyes on Jesus. Don't miss this. According to Galatians 3, God gave the law to prove to us that we can't keep it and to point us to the only one who can, Jesus. All right. We're going to switch gears now. We'll arrive at the same shore, justification by faith. We're just going to take a different boat. And this boat is for all, and it's captained by Jesus. It's considered one of the most, if not the most, significant and foundational question anyone can ask of themselves. Psychologists and sociologists say your answer to it will define your present, and determine your future. They say your answer to this question will affect every single area of your life. The question is, who am I? Never in human history have people been more obsessed with finding out the answer to who am I? I'm an eight with a nine wing, right? I'm an INTFJ. I'm an introvert. I'm an extrovert. We are consumed as a culture thinking about the question, who am I? What do I like? What do I not like? What inspires me? What gives me joy? What mark do I want to leave or make in this world? And what legacy do I want to leave? These are all just questions to ask the same question. Who am I? Paul is not only telling the Galatians who they are, he is telling us who we actually are. And so as I read this part of Paul's letter, I want you to think, imagine, Paul is writing this letter to us, to you today. Galatians 3, 26 
and then through chapter 4, verse 7. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. We are all children of God. Who am I? I am a child of God, period. None of the rest of it matters. Job title, married or single, extrovert, introvert, Republican, Democrat, Cowboys, Eagles. It doesn't matter. We are children of God and our identity must be squarely in God and in him alone. Paul uses all, A-L-L, three times in the first three verses of this section. Nowhere else in Galatians does Paul spell out the vastness of the love of God for all. This is his thesis. This is his main point. He says, you are all children of God. All of you were united with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. In fact, I think the extra things we add to our identity, cultural mandates, Jew or Greek, social mandates, slave or free, sexual mandates, male or female, sometimes just simply divide us. The thing, and maybe the only thing that unites us is being called a child of God. Regardless of who you are, if you believe you get to inherit the promise given to Abraham. The promise, the birth certificate, no longer says your name. Jennifer Audrey Souter, born to Bud and Julie Souter. But rather it says, child of God, through faith in Jesus Christ.
just like I did nothing to earn my legal birth certificate but to simply be born. I did nothing but to be born in Christ to earn the title child of God. Friends, I never want to become numb to this. I hope you don't either. I never want to take for granted this gift of grace, this love so amazing. Paul says it this way in chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Now, before I move on, I want to clarify something for us. You might be wondering, why does Paul use the word sonship here? Just a few moments ago, a few lines above in the letter, Paul is telling us that we are all children of God. You said that was his main point, so what is he doing here? Remember, the most important thing, the most important word in reading the Bible, context. Paul, if you remember, opens up chapter 4 with, what I am saying is that. And he goes on to give the people of Galatia an illustration with an analogy. He's giving them a picture, a picture that they would understand. So at the time, only sons could inherit their father's estate, not daughters. If a father only had daughters, they would actually go out and adopt a male heir. So the Greek word for adoption to sonship here is a legal term referring to the full legal standing of an adopted male heir in the Roman culture. Thankfully, our culture doesn't live under the same rule. So it is fair for us as we move forward here in Paul's letter that every time he says sons, he also means daughters. And as we will see a little bit later on, sonship really has nothing to do with gender at all. All right. Good? All right. So, who is this Jesus we are to fix our eyes on, to cling to? Since we can't keep the law, what did God do? I'm going to read verses 4 and 5 again just to remind us. God sent his son born of the born of a woman born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship Jesus was born of a woman have you ever wondered why why didn't Jesus just come out and walk on some ocean or something and he's 30 years old and he's ready to do some healing ready to get to work Why do we have the whole birth event? Jesus had to be fully God and fully human to represent us on the cross. He had to enter in, all the way in, even to flesh. What does this mean? At a minimum, it means he can relate to us. Friends, we don't worship a God who prefers to stay a safe distance away. We don't worship a God who says, okay, but that's too far for me. That's too messy. That's too painful. 
God saw our mess and he entered in all the way in, even into flesh. Therefore, he can relate to everything you are going through. Are you weary? He entered in. Are you sick? He entered in. Are you lonely? He entered in. Are you afraid? He entered in. In Jesus, God enters in all the way in. And Jesus didn't just enter into flesh, but he entered into the law to redeem us, to purchase us, to buy us back so that we can be free from sin. Scott McKnight is a New Testament scholar. He gives us a meaning to sonship. And so this is his first one. Sonship means being free from the curse of the law. The law no longer has a hold on us. To be a son, a daughter of God, means that we have been set free from the curse of the law. We no longer have to suffer the guilt of being a sinner. We no longer have to fear the wrath of God. Jesus came and said, you are free. And he didn't stop there. Jesus said, better yet, you are mine. You are mine. You are God's son. You are God's daughter. You are adopted into my sonship. God is saying, I made you, I lost you, and then I sent my son to buy you back. You, Christ's follower, are doubly mine. Doubly mine. My question to you then is this. Do you know in your heart that you are free? That you are God's beloved that he delights in you? How could it get any better than that, right? And yet it does. Paul says this in verse 6, Because you are his sons, his daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. So the second meaning of sonship is being led by God's spirit. God sent his spirit. God doesn't just come to us. God comes in to us. The good news of the gospel is that God has entered in, all the way in, to the flesh, to the law, and now into our hearts. The great gift God gave to us because we are his sons, his daughters, is the gift of the spirit. Scott McKnight says this, Sons of God, Christians, are led by the Spirit. What prompts their actions, what stirs their emotions, what guides their behaviors, and what determines their careers is God's Spirit. So, are you allowing the Spirit to guide you? The Spirit doesn't just guide us, it allows us to be able to call out, Abba, Father. 
So lastly, sonship means being intimate with God. For Paul, this sonship, this being a son, a daughter of God, is one who learns to call God Abba. Calling God Abba is the most intimate language of the family in the Jewish world. Abba is a word of intimacy, of deep relationship, of familial relationship. The closest word to Abba in the English language is daddy. Friends, we get to call the God of the universe daddy. It doesn't get more intimate than that. And we develop this intimacy with God through prayer. We can talk to God as our daddy. And we get to listen to him speak to us as his children. You might be familiar with this word Abba because it was the cry of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in his darkest hour. Before Jesus was arrested, put on trial, convicted to death, he prays in Mark 14, 36, Abba, Father. He begs God to step in, to take this cup from him. Abba is Jesus' cry of distress to his loving Father. It's his cry for help. Paul tells us that because God has redeemed us, adopted us, we can now talk to God like Jesus talked to God. At the cross, Jesus did what had to be done so that we could cry, Abba. We get to cry out to God for help. Abba, help. Abba, do something. Abba, be here with me. Abba is the prayer you pray when you get the worst news of your life. And when we cry out to our Father in our darkest moments, unlike Jesus, but because of Jesus, we receive mercy, grace, and love in our time of need. We receive this intimate relationship with God. How would you describe your relationship with God? Would intimate be a word you use? God sent his son as a baby that would grow into a man so he could relate to us. This son who fulfilled the law perfectly his entire life, every minute of every day, would die for you and me. He redeemed us so that we could be called sons and daughters of God. Friends, if if this isn't the best news you have ever heard, If this doesn't want to make you jump for joy, sing hallelujah, say amen, I don't know what will. Who is this God? He is amazing. Amazing. 
So what do we do with this part of Paul's letter? I don't know about you, but his argument to the people of Galatia is pretty powerful. Who are you? You are no longer a slave, but a son and daughter of God, an heir to the promise of Abraham that you are saved by faith in Jesus. Jesus has entered in, all the way in, to the flesh so that he can relate to us. Jesus has entered in all the way into the law so that he can redeem us and call us mine. He's entered in all the way into our hearts through the Spirit so that he can respond to our needs intimately. I challenge you to allow Jesus to enter into your life, your heart today. Do you need to know that he relates to you? Allow him to enter into that space. Do you need to know that he has saved you, redeemed you, and calls you mine? Give him permission to remove the shame and the guilt that you may feel and allow him to replace it with his grace. Do you need to know that he is with you? Cry out to your Abba Father today. Let him minister to you intimately. Or maybe you simply need to give thanks and praise and adoration to God your Father for Jesus. Because of him that we get to be called sons and daughters. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. And as they do, I I know what I'm asking you is hard. It takes a little bit of courage. It takes a little bit of vulnerability. To allow God to speak into your life, to speak into your heart. And when things are easy, it's, it, it, the easiest thing to do, right, is to stay silent, to not make a move. But I really sense, I really believe that God's spirit is here. Remember, it is in your heart. God entered in all the way in to our hearts. He will give you the courage you need. You are his son, his daughter, And he loves you so much. You can trust him. Trust him. Because we can't do this alone, there will be prayer partners along the side who would love to pray with you, for you. Or maybe there's someone sitting next to you who would love to pray with you. Jesus is here. God is here. He has proven it over and over again that he is a God that enters in all the way in. Give him permission to enter into your life today. Let's pray. Abba, Father, 
we cry out to you today. God, I don't know what everyone is going through, but I do know that there is hurt and pain in this room. God, I thank you that we get to cry out to you, Abba, Father, because of what Jesus did. God, you had to ignore Jesus' cry so that you could respond to ours. Thank you. So God, as we enter into this time of response, I pray, Lord, that you would meet us, that you'd give us the courage to be vulnerable with you and to be vulnerable with others. God, you entered into the flesh so that you could relate to us. God, you entered into the law to save us. And God, you gave us the spirit so that you could live inside of us. Thank you. God, we are thirsty for more of you. So as we enter in, meet us, God. Draw us closer to yourself. We are desperate for you. In Jesus' name, amen.